0: Welcome to the Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. This week, Judy is chatting with Elijah Armstrong and Anna Landre about their experiences with ableism in education, which led them to be fierce activists for disability justice. Elijah Armstrong is an epileptic who was denied accommodations in high school and was thus motivated to prevent the same thing from happening to other students. He founded Equal Opportunities for Students in 2015, and he has told his story to evoke change on NPR as well as other outlets. He served on the Disability Rights Education Activism and Mentoring National Student Advisory Board for three years. He was heavily involved in activism at Penn State as an undergrad, and then moved on to Harvard Graduate School of Education. Where Elijah was president of the Black Student Union. Currently, he is working on a project as part of receiving the Paul Hearn Emerging Leader Award from AAPD. With the funds from the Paul Hearn Award, Elijah has started the Human Armstrong Award for Education Activism. Anna Landre is a disability justice activist who has been continually fighting to keep her personal assistance services while attending school. But her work also reaches beyond just herself, as she fights against social and legal barriers faced by all disabled people around the world. We are so grateful that she is doing a summer fellowship with us at The Human Perspective. She graduated from Georgetown this year and was heavily involved in activism on campus. She's a Truman and Marshall Scholar and is about to move to London to study international development and humanitarian emergencies at the London School of Economics. Her advocacy efforts have been featured in outlets including the Washington Post, Forbes, Vogue, and others. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell, and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guests today.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. It's great to be with you today. And we have two great guests with us, Elijah Armstrong and Anna Landre. I've had the privilege of getting to meet and begin to know both Elijah and Anna. And they're wonderful. They're very creative. They're very forward-thinking. I got a call one day from Elijah when he wants something called the Hearn Award, Paul Hearn Award. And he had set up, when he won the Hearn Award, a project called the Human Award, uh, which is focusing on college students, high school students, and uh, middle grade students. And I was very touched by Elijah creating this. And I said, this can't just be for me. It has to be something about you and me because it's intergenerational. And I think that's one of the messages I'm interested in getting across. And so the um, award is now called the Human Armstrong Award, which we'll get into learning more about later. But I also, Anna Landre, I had the privilege of getting to meet Anna a few years ago when she uh, was a student at Georgetown and was putting on a conference and had asked me to come and speak. And ever since then, it's been a natural connection You'll learn she's an amazing advocate. And both of these people are change agents, and we'll see over the next number of decades the impact that they will continue to have. So, both of you had your disabilities uh, when you were younger. Anna, you were born with yours, right? Mm-hmm. And Elijah, when did you know that you had epilepsy?
2: Uh, I was diagnosed when I was in high school. Um, I'm not sure if you want me to get into the whole situation right now, but just as like a brief rundown, I went to this school that was like ranked third in the nation, it was a public school, Um, in Jacksonville Florida where I'm from and my junior year the lights in my math classroom were flickering and it literally caused me to have seizures and I'd have to leave school and go to the hospital literally every other day which was a high school block schedule so it was literally every other day so uh, I contacted my guidance counselor and asked for an accommodation because it just wasn't feasible like I can't it wasn't good for my body and it prevented me from doing school. And it was literally just an accommodation to prevent me from being in the vicinity of the flickering lights. And my guidance counselor told me in so many words, uh, in writing, that the school didn't do accommodations and that if I needed one, I would have to leave for the integrity of the program. And this was in 2013. 13, 2014. This was in, no, this was in 2013. This was fall 2013. So yeah, it obviously started disability activism for me out of necessity, but then after uh, I just continued doing it and now, uh, now we're here.
1: So Elijah, when you started having seizures at 13, did you know before that, that you had epilepsy?
2: I had not been diagnosed with epilepsy before, and it was more around the age of sixteen. I want to say was when it was when it started. I had, had seizures. I had had seizures before when I was a kid, uh, when I was in the second grade, and the doctors didn't seem really concerned. Which now, you know, looking back on, is probably indicative of some, you know, failings in our medical system because you know children aren't supposed to just seize. And they said, yeah, he'll grow out of it. And me not knowing any better, and my mom also not being a medical doctor, we're just like, sure. And lo and behold then they they came up again. And now I'm medicated for it, which I probably should have been for a while. But it was uh, something that started when I was a very little child and then was dormant for about a decade. It's not a little longer. And then popped back up.
1: Did you have any accommodations while you were in elementary school?
2: No, I didn't have any accommodations until well, I actually didn't have any accommodations in high school either. And that's part of the reason why there was a legal settlement, but I didn't request accommodations until I got to high school because, uh, it was really a, it was a situation where like, I was really sick very briefly and then it was fine. So then I was just through until high school.
1: And Anna, you went to a regular elementary school.
3: Yeah. I was mainstreamed in public schools in New Jersey New Jersey Pride. So I was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy with SMA um, when I was 18 months old. And I think that's the disability that's really had the biggest effect on me throughout my educational experience. I fought to get personal assistance services. When I was in elementary school, my mom had to really fight to get someone to help me to the bathroom during the day. And, you know, that's something now I can do independently. But at the time, We really had to fight the school. I was going the whole school day without being able to go to the bathroom. And they didn't want to accommodate that. And there were other issues too, like trying to fight the school system to let me stay after school for activities and have my aid there to get me accessible transportation home from activities. I also remember my mom telling me that in elementary school, I was for a while passed over for those gifted programs. I hate that word, but because I had an IEP. And so they never looked at my test scores. They never looked at my grades. And one day my mom got a call from someone in the school saying, why isn't your daughter in these enrichment programs? Her test scores are this and that. My mom said, well, I don't know. Why don't you figure that out? Like it wasn't, I never made that decision. And it was because they just didn't look at the students with IEPs at all. And another thing I've talked about with Judy is, I remember in fourth grade, sitting at the lunch table with my friends and being told I had to move, that I couldn't sit there because I was a fire hazard in my wheelchair. What did Um, you do? I, I think I argued with her. I mean, even in fourth grade, I had some sense that that was wrong and I wanted to sit with my friends.
1: Do you remember if you moved?
3: I think I moved that one day because she made me. And then, you know, I told my mom and I told my teacher and the next day it was never a problem again. But when you think about that, The fact that fire hazard is something Judy was called in the school systems like 50 years earlier, it's really striking how far we haven't come in getting past the fact that wheelchair users exist and take up space and shouldn't be punished for doing so.
1: Yeah. And that the woman wouldn't have thought of a solution, but the solution was you move. So both of you having had various experiences in elementary school high school, Um, when would you say you individually began to become an advocate for yourself? And when did you begin to think about the broader disability community and wanting to be working in the broader disability community? You want to go first, Elijah?
2: Yeah, I had a 504 meeting on my 17th birthday that I will never forget, uh, where they wrote like, Like, so it was so, it was, man, pretty much everyone listening to this who has a disability can relate to at least having one just really, really terrible 504 meeting. And mine, the school literally wrote a list of my classes in order for most difficult to least difficult for me to pass. And the second, like on the, there were eight classes on the second to last one, they wrote that the idea that this is my uh, second easiest class is grim. And like, I'm like, wow, this is um, it really put into perspective for me that meeting where it's like, OK, like this isn't just like a miscommunication. This is a situation where like I'm really going to I'm really going to have to dig in my heels here and fight, uh, especially because they, the only solution that they offered me. Um, at that point was, it was just drop out. They were like, you need to drop out of school because again, in terms of those gifted programs, the school that I was going to had a bunch of, it had an international baccalaureate program, an IB program, like the lowest classes that were offered at the school were honors. So most kids, especially junior, senior year, were taking like, five, six AP classes. So the idea that I would need an accommodation was able to do these classes was just so foreign. So they, you have, you have to drop out and leave. So what did you do? Uh, I contacted the Office for Civil Rights. I was really blessed in that, similar to Anna, we talked about this before, things didn't really move until I got a article in the newspaper. And one of my favorite things about the article in the newspaper, again, talking about the way that like the more things change, the more they stay the same, was I had a lawyer uh, who's a chair user who volunteered to take on my case pro bono, which was a blessing because, you know, we are a black family with a single mother in North Florida. Like we didn't have the money for a lawyer, but he volunteered to take on the case pro bono uh, after seeing it in the paper because he had experienced the same thing at the same school before. (laughs) So yeah, there were a lot of legal actions that were taken. There was a whole lot of retaliation throughout the time I was there. But I did end up graduating from Stanton. Um, I got my degree uh, in 2015 with all of my peers. Well, I shouldn't say with all my peers. I didn't go to graduation because of the harassment I received. I went to Universal Studios to keep my own peace, And I don't regret it at all. But yeah, I did graduate class of 2015. And the The moment I really realized the larger disability community was I reached out to the Office for Civil Rights and there were a number of people who were working in the White House who were doing a lot of disability engagement who heard my story and invited me out to come speak to me and and were like, yeah, what you're dealing with is is absolutely horrible, but it's not uncommon. So these are people you should meet. And I met Maria Town and Rebecca Coakley and Patrick Coakley and Uh, Yeah, really, when I was like 18, 19, I started getting plugged into the broader disability community as a whole. And I realized that like, I wasn't really alone. This wasn't just an anomaly, that this was something that a lot of other people experience and that my experience fighting this could be done in community to help other kids around the nation as well.
1: Did you take the classes you wanted to take in high
2: school? The, The school was very difficult in like Every sense that they could be. So rather than accommodating me my junior year, they decided that they were going to pull me out of all of my classes but one, instead of giving me the classes like virtually, like they said was the only way to do. They gave me my classes at the beginning of my senior year. So when I started my senior year of high school, I was taking 13 classes and eight of them were APs. It was a very very stressful time. But yeah, they retaliated in a whole bunch of just, you you can see why, like, I'm glad that I made it through, but I can't really hold it against anyone that didn't, because this was a whole, like, they retaliated at every, every step of the way that they could. It was a really difficult, really difficult time.
1: But you got a settlement.
2: Yeah, I did. I did. I got a settlement my sophomore year of college I graduated in 2015. I got my settlement in 2017. And just a note on that, which is something that I think is really interesting, is the fact that, like, I didn't go into this saying, oh, yeah, let me see how much money I can get out of this district. Like, this whole thing happened because I wanted to go to school with my friends. Like I wanted to have access to the classrooms and other opportunities the other students had. It became a monetary settlement because they refused to accommodate at any point while I was in school. And all of the lawsuits that you hear about, you know, people with disabilities, whether in the workforce or in education or what have you getting monetary settlements, these are people that are just asking to be included. And if the business or school or what have you decided to include them, they they wouldn't happen because that's what they're asking for. Like I'm not, I'm absolutely not returning the money to Duval County, don't get me wrong. I'm absolutely not suggesting that at all. I earned every single one of those pennies based on all of the harassment that I received. But if you gave me the opportunity to say, you don't go through this experience and are instead included as a normal high school student versus you get this amount of money which doesn't even cover all of the medical bills that I incurred or the lawyer fees or all of that. I obviously choose to be included like the rest of my class was.
1: Anna?
3: Yeah, so I think for a really long time, I didn't wanna be seen as disabled which is funny because I'm a wheelchair user. My disability is very visible. I could be, you know, the veritable poster child for disability. And I think that played into the fact that I was really good at school. So I kind of had this weird experience where I got this backhanded ableism. You know, I escaped like the, the targeting that a lot of people with intellectual or psychiatric disabilities get in school. But instead I got this backhanded ableism where people would like tokenize me and say, oh, wow, you're overcoming your disability or I don't see you as disabled. All of this really, I think, socialized me to hate my disability, to see disability as incompatible, fundamentally incompatible with academic success and to just shy away from it. And it, of course, led to a lot of internalized ableism and kind of hating myself. And that didn't change until my freshman year at college when I was in this huge battle with my insurance company to get personal assistance services at college. They were cutting all of my hours. I wasn't going to be able to go to the bathroom during the day or have someone to help me shower, which obviously meant I was going to have to drop out and move back home. And I, like Elijah, went to the press. I was able to get some first local journalists, and then it even went on a national level and got covered about my situation. And immediately I got other disabled people reaching out to me about this same thing. They said, you know, I had the same problem as you and I couldn't go to college or, and I couldn't continue having my job, or I couldn't move out of my parents' house when all of my friends were. And here I am now, 50 something years old, still living with my parents because I have to rely on them for care. And it was kind of this sudden realization that these issues that I had been facing my whole life wasn't just my problem or my bad luck. These were systemic injustices that a whole lot of people like me were facing. And the problem wasn't me, the problem was the system. The problem was these regulations that either weren't being followed or were discriminatory themselves. And I was angry. I was so just viscerally angry for those other people I had spoken to for myself. And it kind of became, how has no one fixed this? You know, people have been trying for years, but how has this not been fixed? I better work on this too. You know, it might as well be me who fixes it. And I felt this also really big responsibility because I had gotten lucky. I had gotten my story into the news. And I always say that successes in advocacy are a mix of of hard work, of privilege, and of luck. You know, you can work as hard as you want. And if you're not like a sympathetic disabled victim, and if you're not just a little bit lucky, then you're probably not going to succeed. And that's really hard. But I kind of felt like I had to use my position to get more into this issue. And that led to, you know, disability advocacy
2: writ large that's part of what made it so terrifying in, in my position as well is the realization that like, if I hadn't gotten a lawyer who was willing to do this pro bono, then like, I'm just screwed. I have to drop out. There's, there's nothing else that I can do. And that's part of too like reading all of these applications for the human Armstrong award, all of these people who have like experienced such intense ableism in various aspects of education. It's like, so so much of this like only works out due to forces completely out of your control. Like I was very stubborn and hardworking but I, I needed a lawyer to, to advocate for me which you shouldn't need to get your legislated civil rights but like so much of it is out of your control which is part of what makes this so terrifying.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: I think what's very important about what you're both discussing is the fact that there now are laws in place, certainly in your case, Elijah, with the experiences that you were hap- having, was very clear. A, you shouldn't have had to get a lawyer. It's very clear that Florida, as a state, has not been doing enforcement through the Department of Ed, that a school like this would think that it didn't have to make an accommodation in 2015 in a law that's been in place since 1975. And in Anna's case, I think what we've seen is another law around, it was Medicaid that you were dealing with?
3: Yeah, it was Medicaid regulations in the state of New Jersey.
1: Right. So you didn't have a right like he did. The school was not obligated to provide you with personal assistance, getting up in the morning, going to bed and things like that. But there was a law in place which could allow this to happen. So it really did require you to be Pretty sophisticated.
3: Well, I think in part it's that the laws weren't sufficient. You know, my school had no obligation to provide me personal assistance. The state in theory did, but a lot of it was insufficient. And a lot of times they don't even obey the laws. They want to cut corners and save themselves as much money as possible. And I think it kind of shows, you know, we we talk a lot about the importance of disability justice. The importance of looking at law as necessary, but also the need to go beyond law in our work into addressing the root causes of ableism, because the law is only as good as the people applying it. And the people applying it, sitting in those offices, the bureaucrats in the state of New Jersey were ableist. They didn't think I deserved to be able to go away to college. And so they were going to do everything they could to make it so that I couldn't.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
3: And I think... That's a really big issue that we still have to deal with, in addition to the laws on paper.
1: But I want to, you know, cut this by saying the issue of feeling proud of who you are and gradually being able to recognize that what you're talking about, Elijah, and what you're talking about, Anna, is something that you should be able to get because you want to be able to live your life like anybody else. And that ability to I assume get support from your families to go ahead and do this is very important. And I know many of you that are listening have similar stories and I think telling these stories is really very important for your friends to also hear. So I'm wondering now, you're both on college campuses. What are some of the experiences that you might've had regarding um, ableism and disability? Are there experiences that you'd like to share with us of problems that you also were working on.
2: I will say, well first, but this is part of the problem. Like I was very much favored by a lot of professors and a lot of like administrators while I was at Penn State. So I personally didn't have many challenges but that's part of the issue was the fact that they they knew me already. So like that's part of why I didn't have um, nearly those kinds of issues. I was for three years while I was uh, in college Uh, So from 2016 through 2019, I was on the board of the Disability Resources Education Activism and Mentoring Board, um, the Dream Board, colloquially. Uh, And people had these challenges all the time of, um, especially because a lot of the accommodations that are needed, um, things like, for me, consideration for absences, because a lot of college classes are graded based on attendance. And. My disability makes me sometimes unable to attend. A lot of times those accommodations specifically are on a case-by-case basis. So your professor can like turn them down. And I know there are a couple grades that I had while I was in college that are lower because of those attendance policies where I had to miss because I was sick. But I mean, it all worked out for me. So, I mean, I'm not sitting here like whining about a B B plus that I got in an English class that should have been an A minus. But at the same time, I recognize that that still is something that shouldn't be the case. And that does often make or break a lot of students for financial aid, for scholarships, for uh, internship considerations. So just because this wasn't a situation that impacted me negatively doesn't mean it doesn't impact a lot of other students because it does.
3: Yeah, I was really lucky that I kind of flourished at Georgetown. Had a lot of issues, but I grew up in the suburbs, which wasn't very accessible. Moving to DC just felt like liberation. I could suddenly go where I wanted, when I wanted, and use public transportation, and most of the buildings are accessible. And I loved my classes, and I made great friends. I moved in with my best friends after my freshman year, and then lived with them the next three years. And I discovered Georgetown's Disability Studies minor, which was a huge source of community, and, and it was great. But I also felt like along the way, I was always fighting to stay there, you know, fighting the university for accessible housing, for them to fix all of the ADA violations around campus. I was in hours upon hours of meetings in, term, in about infrastructure and construction. And for the four years I was at Georgetown, I was basically their, you know, de facto disability and ADA consultant, which I shouldn't have been. They should have architects for that, but no one knew what they were doing except me. Uh, So that was a lot of unpaid labor in order to make sure I could get into buildings. And I was also fighting for my personal assistance services, like I mentioned. And I was even fighting to be included by my peers. A lot of social spaces at Georgetown are really inaccessible, like virtually all of the housing. So, you know, when your friends are all going to a party, I typically couldn't go. I even quit a club at Georgetown because they kept having like social hours and wine nights and game nights and half of them were inaccessible. And I said, look, I don't feel like an equal or valued member of this club if my presence clearly isn't valued. And they, you know, didn't do anything after I said that. And so I quit. And, you know, there was also a lot of ableism in Georgetown's medical leave policies. I once almost had to like leave for a semester. They tried to put me on medical leave because they, I was in the hospital and they told me, virtual learning is not up to the academic standards of Georgetown University, which is so funny because a year later the pandemic hit and as soon as non-disabled people needed virtual learning, it became a reality. And it's not like we didn't have a system in place. We had Zoom, we used Zoom on snow days and, and times when a professor couldn't make it to class, But they told me, no, actually, you in the hospital is not an excuse for virtual learning. If you don't leave the hospital and get back to class by Monday, we're going to give you credit withdrawal. And so against all of my doctor's recommendations, I went back to class and I was in pain and on a lot of opioids, which wasn't good for my learning either. But, you know, that was Something I had to do because of that academic ableism.
1: So, Elijah, the award that you have created, could you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, uh, I think a lot of what Anna just said really addresses a lot of why this award was created. There are two facets of it, but really the one we're working on right now is we're giving out six awards of $1,000 each. To students in middle school through higher education who have experienced ableism in education and are fighting against ableism in education. And we're going to be telling the stories of the six winners through videos. We're going to be putting out the videos of the winners over time. And it's necessary for a bunch of reasons. That unpaid labor aspect is very real, that there are a lot of people with disabilities who have to provide their own accommodations, who have to constantly educate the university or professors or what have you in ways that aren't compensated. And also it doesn't, it often doesn't show up on a resume either. Like there's a lot of work that goes into this advocacy, which isn't really acknowledged by employers or grad schools. So I also want people to be able to have that there. So if they're in an interview and they're going down their resume, they can say, this is all of the work that I've done um, in this aspect, uh, which is really validating as well. And then also more on the, educator side for when we put out the videos I want educators and administrators to be able to look at these and instead of saying wow this is so inspirational to be able to say what can we do so these students don't have to overcome so much like what can we do to prevent these barriers from from being raised uh yeah so there's a there's a lot in there about you know unpaid labor and the the ways that these policies, because obviously, if you're leaving the hospital against your doctor's orders, it's not realistic to expect you to do your best academic performance. I know I had similar issues when I was in high school. But then when you're applying for scholarships with your GPA, they don't look at that. They just look at what grade you got on on what test and and how your final grades turned out. So also to be able to run a program that offers Uh, some degree of, of funding for students with disabilities that doesn't look at resume or GPA also to combat some of those challenges as well.
1: I think what's important about this discussion is on the one hand, we do have laws in place, not necessarily being implemented appropriately, but the ability to make them work. And I think it's fair to say that both of you are very bright, you went to really great schools, graduating from Harvard in Georgetown. And I raise that because there are many other students who will not um, be at your level of academic performance, which doesn't mean anything lesser about them. I would not have gotten into Georgetown. I think the important point is resilience and your beliefs that at some point, when you could see yourself as disabled individuals being a part of a bigger group, that that really helped. So what messages do you have to students who are in high school or are um, at universities who have visible and invisible disabilities, who are concerned about being labeled as having a disability, who are concerned about speaking out and having something negative happen to them? What are some of your messages to them?
3: I think it's a really difficult dilemma to even think about disclosing a disability. And something we did at Georgetown was I, along with a couple other students, founded a disability alliance for students to kind of bring that community out of the woodwork because all too often, all of the incentives point to you not disclosing if you have the choice. Or if you don't have the choice, if like me, your disability is is visible, then not asking for accommodations and trying to like hide your disability or or all of your needs to the extent that you can. And I think the way we tried to solve that and the way I really believe in solving that is just providing a space for community, for disability culture to, to flourish and for you to find your people. Like in the Disability Alliance, we used to all meet in my apartment and big cookies and hang out. And we really got this strong community where there was none, where people weren't identifying. And I think so much of our strength comes not just from laws, you know, those we need 100%, but it comes from this peer support. It comes from mutual aid, like the Armstrong Award. And I think We have a lot of unmet needs there for both community and for resources, but that's something we can all push towards to find others and build that community.
1: You know, for me, Elijah, it really uh, was an honor, as I mentioned earlier, that you are creating this award that's now the Human Armstrong Award. But what I think is really valuable about this is, you said you got like 185 applications. That's 185 stories. And that's what I think is really important. Only a small number of people will be selected at this point. But the bottom line is, 185 people took the time to apply. And I think it will have a multiplier effect because this project will go on again. And as both of you are saying, the ability to tell your stories and to be role models for people. I think that's what's important. So Elijah, what are some of your words to our audience about how to keep going and fighting?
2: Yeah, uh, I would say uh, this is not necessarily the most traditional thing, but I found a lot of support outside of my school and outside of my, um, which is obviously you know, part of the problem is that once you disclose, sometimes your community that you previously had does turn against you. But having not just like peers, um, but also mentors like Patrick Coakley and Tony Quello have been super great for me for a, for a really long time. And then also, and this is something that I've talked to a lot of other students about, is that there are times where I know I had that moment and it was in that 504 meeting, and I'm not sure when your moment was, Anna, where you're sitting there and you're like, okay, like I can either go along with what you want me to do and not have my needs met, or I can fight for myself get my needs met and then turn like people against me and it's just like in those moments it does it is really difficult but also that the people who are putting these pressures on you aren't going to be paying your bills aren't going to be you know helping you get medical care aren't going to be helping you live out whatever it is that you're doing after school and it's going to be difficult. There are going to be times where you do need to fight, and that might mean losing some people, but make sure that you take care of yourself. Don't capitulate just because other people feel uncomfortable with people with disabilities in a space. And it's easier said than done. That's part of why you have like the mentors and friends who also, you know, validate you in your experience as a person with a disability or chronic illness, but make sure that you don't, don't give in to their beliefs of you. Because that that doesn't lead you to good places.
3: So often what pushes me to that point, to doing what's right for me and, and taking all of those risks, is the thought that I'm not just doing it for me, I'm doing it for the next person who is in my position. Because a lot of times we're the first, and it sucks to be the first. To be, you know, people joke, oh, you're a pioneer. It is hard. And, you know, to be able to do that so someone else doesn't have to I think really often pushes me to that point especially given the fact that we see that so many of the problems that for example Judy faced in her education I might be facing or people who went to school decades earlier than you might have also faced and that sort of stagnation is just unacceptable and so I I feel in part like a duty or responsibility to the next student who comes along and again that's there's privilege involved in that too right not everybody has the ability to always push. But when you can, it, I think it really pays off.
1: I feel like all three of us having been to university, been in graduate school, going to graduate school, are privileged. And that, that part of our privilege is really uh, committing to reaching out and supporting others. But I think on college campuses, uh, one of the other issues deals with the administrations and whether the administrations are seen as leaders in advancing the eradication of ableism, of even acknowledging that ableism exists. And I'm wondering at Harvard and at Georgetown, uh, do you feel that that was something that the leadership of the university even has an inkling of? And do you feel they're playing a positive role in really trying to address this?
3: Uh, During my four years at Georgetown, we got a lot closer to getting there. I think when I arrived, disability was not something that was even on people's minds, the front of their minds or the back of their minds. And a lot of my work was just being in different rooms. You know, I went to hours upon hours of administrative meetings a, a week with university people on Everything from student life to infrastructure to academic accommodations and just being in the room, being visible did a lot. And I, but I worry about the fact that now I've graduated. Now, who's going to be in the room saying, you missed this? This is inaccessible. That's unacceptable because it's really hard. You know, disability is still not thought of in most higher ed spaces as one of the facets of diversity that we need to include. And because Georgetown has a disability studies program now, it's really new. A lot of that work is is starting, but there's a lot more to be done. And it's the burden is always on students. I feel like it's my experience.
1: I hope disabled faculty.
3: Yeah, yeah, certainly disabled faculty too. I think we didn't have as much involvement from them, at least in the rooms I was in at Georgetown. But I think that's something that definitely needs to be considered. So I think it's still i something that needs a lot of attention, and that's part of why we created the Georgetown Disability Alliance to have that sort of pressure and representation. But there's a long way to go.
2: Yeah, um, and while I was getting my master's at Harvard, the disability accommodations were like super great. Like they would, but like I mean, it was Harvard, so like they literally would like send the letters to your professors as long as you consented before you even like got the class. So that was really cool. Uh, what I would say is that I'm much more skeptical. I also went to to Penn State for my undergrad. I'm much more skeptical around like the sort of work that they do around equity issues. But I would say the best way to describe it, I had a conversation with my friend who uh, is a postdoc at Teachers College now. And it's like, even when they say that, and not just Penn State, I'm saying universities as a whole, when they say that they want to speak to disability, they'll invite someone like Judy, not that Judy isn't, like Judy is wonderful, you know what I mean? But it's very different when you're talking to someone who's been on the cover of Time Magazine and served in two White Houses and has multiple honorary doctorates, or even me at this point, like I've got a master's from Harvard, I've won the Hearn Award, like you can Google me and stuff comes up and you can see that like, I'm a respected disability advocate who's also not a current student here. So you can invite me in and say, I can tell you all about my experiences and all of the work that I've done in in different places and all that's going on with the Human Armstrong Award, but at the same time, there are students at the school who are going through the same thing right now. And are are you going to amplify and listen to them or are they going to experience the same kind of retaliation that the three of us received when we had to speak up as students ourselves? That's really the level of skepticism that I'm that I'm facing right now is like, it's a lot easier when the person's not currently a student and is already respected by outside spaces, which is a total privilege. And I'm glad to have it because like, you know, it's a way to help support others, but at the same time, like it needs to come with supporting others. You can't just bring someone who's already acknowledged by the outside world and by other traditionally ableist forces and spaces and then act like you're doing the diversity work.
3: It was also interesting because I went to a Catholic university. Georgetown is a Jesuit school. And so we have these stated Jesuit values, things like cura personalis, which is care for the whole person, women and men for others. And you know. so there's these stated principles that we're all supposed to be learning with the goal of forwarding these principles. And so it's so often in my advocacy, I would say, well, the fact that you're discriminating against me is not in line with your Jesuit values. Like Jesuit values this and Jesuit values that. And I think that's part of why I went to Georgetown. I loved that all of the education was supposedly with the goal of making the world a better place and working for others. And so then when I got there and that wasn't what was being done, I felt myself constantly raising those issues in different rooms and drawing ties between them and disability justice, you know? care for the whole person sounds a lot like community care, which is a stated pillar of of disability justice. And how can we weave those together, given the really ugly history of the Catholic Church in tandem with disability? And so that's another kind of complexity that I was dealing with as someone who, you know, does, I'm not Catholic, but I was going to a Catholic school and they were claiming these values that I wasn't seeing.
1: So this show is coming to an end. And as you could see, our discussion could go on much longer. So I think now that we're out of our universities continuing to work with students and faculty on campus to really support them and help create environments that are free of ableism and racism and ableism. And I think also the need for us to be working more with other diverse communities on campuses to get them to be embracing disability as a part of the work that they are doing is really important. So thank you both very much. Look forward to hearing the great things that you will continue to do. And certainly thank you, Elijah, for the Human Armstrong Award. And I look forward to who the winners are going to be so they can, on their resume, say that they were an awardee of this project. Thank you both very much.
0: Thanks, Judy.
3: Thanks for
2: having me on.
0: You've been tuning in to The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guests were Anna Landre and Elijah Armstrong. Be sure to follow Elijah on Twitter at Elijah's A Prophet and follow Anna at Anna Landre. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Juaren, And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And follow Judy on Twitter at JudithHuman and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective.